I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast with a special focus on Morocco this week. Our featured book is by Ahmed Kanani, Earlham College, in his new book, All Politics Are God's Politics, Moroccan Islamism and the Sacralization of Democracy, which was just published by Rutgers University Press. We're also joined by Kautar Gilani of Oxford. She'll be talking about her new article, The Legitimate After the Uprisings, Justice, Equity, and Language Politics in Morocco. And finally, we're joined by Chantal Berman of Georgetown University, and she'll be talking about her new American Journal of Political Science article, Policing the Organizational Threat in Morocco. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Kautar Ghilani. She is a PhD candidate at, in Modern Middle Eastern Studies at Oxford. Um, Kautar, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about your brand new article in the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, um, The Legitimate After the Uprisings, Justice, Equity, and Language Politics in Morocco. So tell us about your article. So this article looks at um, four different um, language actors uh, and generally the whole spectrum of language politics after 2011 um, in Morocco. And it really started from an observation that is how come all language um, advocates in Morocco um, advocating for the use of a specific language in the public space, how come all these language um, advocates have switched their justification for the language policy they are advocating to adopt justice and equity after mm -hmm. 2011. And this is really the observation and the question that has um, inspired the article. And um, yeah, so starting from there, um, the article makes three contributions, um, I would say. The first one is um, conceptual. Mm -hmm. um, it brings in the concept of the legitimate that I distinguish from legitimacy and um, um, legitimation processes. Um, the, the second one is about um, how language is telling us a lot more than just um, mm -hmm. what is used to be said about the region that language is connected to identity. Um, I'm, I'm using language politics as kind of um, an object that is telling us a lot more um, and it's telling us something about the political in Morocco. And finally, um, it contributes to the discussion about the Arab uprisings by nuancing the idea that the Arab uprisings did not bring any substantial change um, to uh, politics and society generally in the Middle East and North Africa by saying, no, something has changed a novelty has appeared. It is ideational and it is that the legitimate has switched from unity after independence recognition right before um, the Arab uprisings to justice and equity as the norms of, um, um, of the legitimate. Let's talk about that a little bit more. You say that this is a fundamental ideal, ideational novelty. Um, and so tell us a little bit more about that. How did the thinking about legitimacy change from pre-2011 to post? Um, well, really, it, it, I should explain a little bit the concept of the legitimate so yeah, that absolutely. I can answer the question. Um, so th when I noticed that language ad advocates all switched the way they justify 
uh, their claims, but did not change uh, what they um, advocate. So people advocating the use of standard Arabic would keep advocating the use of standard Arabic. However, instead of using the norm of unity, they would use that of justice um, and equity. Um, mm -hmm. So if we take this language politics, all these people debating about language, we can see that from independence until today in the Maghreb generally, but in Morocco specifically, um, language has been continuously debated. Um, and therefore we have somehow metaphorically an archive of regimes of justifications believed to be powerful um, in the Moroccan public space um, to justify political stances. And in this case, language politics. So language and language politics, language debates are an ideal object to follow the um, justifications, this ideas that, mm -hmm. and these ideas, norms and values that are believed to be powerful um, in terms of uh, justifying political action. So starting from there, this is what I call the legitimate. It's mm -hmm. the ideational substratum um, of legitimacy. Um, and I distinguish it from legitimacy as the source of legitimacy. In the case of the, um, of Morocco, we could think about it as the traditional religious legitimacy of the monarchy or from legitimation processes, the latest of which would be the adoption of a new constitution. And so this legitimate, these norms and values, the article argues have changed because of the 2011 uprisings. And we can see that all language advocates have used the same, um, justifications um, and they have all switched at the same time. So unity was the most important justification right after independence. And then um, at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, recognition became the most important um, justification. And after 2011, all language advocates advocating standard Arabic, French, Derija, um, that is the Moroccan Arabic dialect, or Tamazight, have all switched to this new, to justice and equity to justify the exact same um, positions. And therefore this is how I, I argue that um, the 2011 uprisings and the 20 February movement in Morocco had an impact, an ideational impact on what is believed to be powerful um, in Moroccan society in terms of norms and values, in terms of the justification of the political. It's, it's really, really interesting, this concept of linguistic justice. Uh, how does that intersect with the other kinds of economic or political demands which are commonly heard? Well, um, linguistic justice has been really used, I mean, by standard Arabic advocates because it has been um, adopted by one um, um, linguist in Morocco, Qadr Fihri, inspired by the whole debate on linguistic justice in Europe mm -hmm. um, and in Canada, but most importantly in Europe. Um, I mean, um, it's interesting to see that with the concept of linguistic justice, language is really considered not only as an identity um, related issue, but also the question of utility and what language does in terms of economic utility, uh, communication, all these things are considered 
um, in a kind of model that is proposed by Abdel Qadr al-Fasil-Fihri, but not only him, uh, also the state through the Ministry of Education and other institutions are more and more using this concept of um, linguistic justice, but with an other understanding that is um, in order to um, make justice and make the education system fair, um, mm -hmm. They sh the state should offer more French in order to compensate for the discrepancies between the public sector, uh, I mean, public education that is heavily Arabic focused and the private sector that is, um, that is strong in its teaching of French and therefore uh, would compensate for the fact that, well, uh, people going to the public um, school do not um, benefit from French and therefore have more difficulties accessing the job market that is in French. So the, the same concept of linguistic justice has been used differently to justify um, either more Arabic, thinking of linguistic justice also as, I mean, mm -hmm. being fair to the Arabic language, to an identity language, how to be, um, um, yeah, I mean, fair to, to a language, whereas, for example, for the state, it is used as how to be fair to individuals by offering economic utility through language. So same concept, different understandings. I was fascinated by how that then is adopted by the Amazigh activists. Yes, absolutely. The Amazigh have really adopted the word insaf, um, that is that can be translated as equity, um, and it is very important in all the newspapers published on the uh, Amazigh issue. And they have also started using the, um, the phrase linguistic justice with, with this idea of Amazigh needs to, uh, to be justly recognized. I mean, to be on an equal foot, footing with um, Arabic, standard Arabic. So, um, but, I mean, it's just that the concept of linguistic justice has been really adopted by standard Arabic advocates uh, more than by uh, Amazigh advocates who have more, um, I mean, uh, insisted on the idea of insult, but it's, it's used by the association Azeta, for example. And then, uh, and then with the local dialect as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, this idea of being fair to students who need to access the education system mm -hmm. in their mother tongue and therefore offering them education in either Derija or um, their, um, the Tamazight of their region. Um, I mean, their mother tongue, um, would it be Arabic or Tamazight, uh, is, is, is key to uh, Derija advocates. Um, yeah. That's super interesting. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Kaltar Gelani of Oxford University about her new article, The Legitimate After the Uprisings, Justice, Equity, and Language Politics in Morocco, uh, in the January 2021 issue of British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, thank you, Kaltar. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Chantal Berman, uh, the Department of Government at Georgetown University, author of the new article, Policing the Organizational Threat in Morocco, Protests and Public Violence in Liberal Autocracies, which is uh, now published on First View at the American Journal of Political Science. Uh, Chantal, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us about the article. 
So Mark, um, this is an article that focuses uh, specifically on protest policing as a form of repression. And this is really one of the main ways that um, <clears throat> governments are inflicting violence in a sort of public way against their citizens. Um, and I think core to the study of, of protest policing um, is that when we see things like demonstrations being broken up, uh, police making mass arrests, using weaponry, these kinds of things, this is not just sort of keeping order, it's not sort of random violence, but that there's an inherent political logic uh, to the way that states are using their security forces against demonstrations uh, as a form of sort of political and social control. Um, and this is an article that focuses on the case of Morocco, and I'll speak a little bit more about um, sort of what I think Morocco represents in that sense. Um, but I do want to mention before, before sort of getting into that, that, you know, these sort of dynamics of, of sort of violence being used in the public square as a form of social control is by no means limited to sort of these lesser non-democratic countries like Morocco, right? So those of us who have been living uh, in the US over the past year have seen the kind of violence that's been inflicted against um, Black Lives Matter protests after the death of George Floyd, for example. Yeah, Certainly these are general in questions of interest to everyone. Yeah, I think that sort of protest policing and the way in which it is used with a political goal in mind uh, is, is sort of something that can interest us the world over. That said, um, one of the goals of the article is to sort of think about what protest policing means in a given political context and how the way that the state itself is organized can actually give rise to different patterns of protest policing. And by that, what I mean is the question of which protesters or which sort of demonstrations or protest groups are going to be subject to violence and which are not uh, and why, sort of what is the political purpose behind this. Um, and so in this article, I, I focus in on the case of Morocco and I look specifically at the way that the affiliated organization to a protest movement uh, known as social movement parlance as the SMO is going to shape the way in which uh, states are using violence or not as the case may be against protest movements. Um, so in Morocco, for example, um, you have a sort of case of, of sort of what is called in the Middle East politics literature, sort of liberalization without democratization, right? You have a country where in the 21st century, you've seen a sort of expansion in the sort of civil sphere, the nature of protest, the ability of citizens to use protest and making social claims, political claims um, at the same time as you actually have seen not a sort of, uh, a sort of devolution of the powers of governance or, and particularly the powers of coercion uh, to the public. And so you have a question of what does it mean to use violence in a context where there are some checks and balances against executive power, but not too many. Um, and so I focus on the, the sort of state of organizations basically making the argument that the older an organization is, the more embedded it is with the state forces. That is, you know, these organizations that have pretty long-standing relationships with the state. Um, this is not to say that they're fully co-opted, right? These are organizations right. such as labor unions, for example, that may have long-standing relationships with political parties. Um, they may have sort of personnel overlaps or people from that organization are, you know, can serve in a, in a civil, society, civil servant or a ministerial capacity or vice versa. Um, and those are basically the organizations that are charged with sort of representing public grievance through demonstration and strike repertoires. And they are the organizations that, even though they might sponsor a lot of protests and those protests might make contentious claims that are at odds in some ways against the policies of the state, we won't actually see a lot of violence. Um, and we can contrast that with, with what I call autonomous organizations or organizations that have been, you know, sort of more recent organizations that have pursued these similar ties with state authorities in the sense that these are kind of unknown organizations. These are organizations that sort of lack these channels of cooperation uh, with state authorities. And so even if these organizations are making similar types of claims through their protests, even if they're using similar types of repertoires and demonstrations, we're actually going to see higher levels of violence against these newer or more autonomous organizations based on the fact that the state is interested in preserving what I call 
the monopoly of, of sort of older organizations over the ability to mobilize protests. So you might see very, very large protests uh, that receive almost no violence at all. And then what seem to be relatively minor protests that attract like a full scale police response. Precisely. And this is kind of a question that's been laid out in some of the prior repression literature. So in Vincent Boudreaux's work, for example, we pose this question of why do we sometimes see sort of larger or multi-sided protests that are permitted to go on? And we have many of these examples in the case of Morocco. And why do we often see sort of protests that sort of on their face, right, sort of spatially and physically appear less threatening, they're smaller, they're not as widespread, um, sort of subject to these really extreme forms of repression. And I think this is part of that answer. And so a key thing then is, uh, in, in terms of what you're contributing then, is trying to understand what it is exactly that these types of regimes find threatening. Precisely. The sort of the, 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 the point is to sort of unpack this notion of threat. And threat is not a new notion to the protest policing literature, sure. right? It's sort of at the core of why we understand, you know, states to use violence in the first place. That said, it can often be sort of used in a tautological way, right? Why was this protest policed? Well, this protest was found threatening. Um, but sort of the point here is to kind of build a sort of prior notion of threat that kind of explains a broader logic. And my thinking here is that what actually sort of aside from actual demonstrations, physical demonstrations, right, this notion of sort of people in, in space making contentious claims in public squares in front of the parliament, this is kind of our classic notion of mass threat right, that the very assembly of citizens is going to prove threatening to a non-democratic regime. Um, and my thinking is that it's less about the sort of assembly of citizens in public space and more about the underlying organizations that through this use of demonstration repertoires are showing that they have the capacity to mobilize and that they have the capacity to mobilize independently of their sort of affiliation with different state organs. And I think that that is, in this article, at least part of where the threat lies. That's really interesting. So tell us about the research then uh, the, and the event database that you put together. Sure. Um, so this article um, empirically is based largely on uh, a sort of protest event database that I've collected in the case of Morocco. So basically we have a process of, and I have a, a sort of group of phenomenal RAs who have done a lot of this coding work based in Rabat, of looking through Moroccan newspapers and we're using two papers um, and coding out instances of protest demonstrations and strikes uh, from these papers. And what we found in this process has been um, actually a sort of really rich approach to coverage of a lot of protests. So we'll find things like, you know, extensive characterization of protest demands, what organizations, if any, have been affiliated, what the protesters actually did, where they marched. Um, and then crucial for, for this kind of work, we'll find um, information about, did the police attend this protest? Were there riot police? What were their actions? Did they intervene violently? Were there arrests? Uh, and basically all of this information is coded as you do with protest event catalogs. And I therefore, sort of run regressions at the level of the individual protest event, looking at the instance of violence as the dependent variable. And I find for reference that the sort of incidence of violence in terms of the protest database, which covers uh, the years 2006 through 2016 is about 7% of protests uh, subject to police violence. And then you're able to then to show empirically which protests actually get, re get, I guess repressed isn't exactly the right word, but get targeted more than others. Yeah, I think repressed is the right word. So the, the okay. DV is constructed specifically as an act of police violence. And there's exactly, a sort of right. standard DV that I work with, which also counts what I call repertoires of intimidation. And this is quite common for, for folks who have attended protests in Morocco or seen images of them, where you'll find instances where riot police will sort of surround the protest, for example, but won't actually intervene. Um, and so that I think applies a slightly different logic. And so I do a few different modeling techniques kind of looking at when these different uh, techniques of protest policing um, are used. But the sort of main independent 
the main dependent variable is going to be the actual use of violence. So, so weaponry or arrests or physical intervention against protests. So tell us then, what do you think the major takeaway of the article is for people who study protests and repression? So I think, so one of the, the sort of sticking points that I found when I was thinking through the literatures on uh, sort of repression or state violence towards protest is that these phenomena have been studied through very different methodologies and approaches between you know, non-democratic states and societies on the one hand, and then uh, sort of US and Europe-based protest policing um, literature on the other. Mm -hmm. um, so our, our sort of authoritarian protest repression literature, for, for lack of a better term, tends to adopt this very sort of Lickbachian model, right? So it's all about this sort of temporal transference between levels of mobilization and levels of state repression. And then we ask questions like, you know, is this repression positive linear over time? Is it negative linear? Is it U-shaped? And, and sort of does repression cause more mobilization or not? And those questions have been posed right. in many different ways and to interesting effect in different countries. Um, but we have in this model a sort of sense that the, the sort of nature of the protest events themselves is very much aggregated and we don't get a strong sense for differentiation between different protest groups or organizations and, and sort, of, so, sort of political logic of that threat I think is a little bit lost. Um, and then in the sort of protest policing sociological literature, which is coming primarily out of the United States and Europe, we have a much stronger sense of variation between protests and between groups. Right, so less than thinking about protest as this sort of aggregate phenomenon, you know, how much protest is there and then how much repression is there, mm -hmm. they're thinking about the question of what makes certain groups subject to so much more violence than other groups. Um, <clears throat> so I can give you an example. I actually taught some of this literature um, in my protest class in the fall and my students were very quick to point out some of these differences in the way that protests in the wake of the George Floyd murder murders have been policed in the United States as opposed to the um, anti-lockdown protest, right? So again, right. sort of thinking through like, what are the politics of which protest groups are subject to oppression and why? Um, and so this is the kind of approach that I wanted to incorporate more into the study of protest policing within a non-democratic system to say that there is a political logic underlying who is repressed and who is not. And that kind of transcends this kind of blunter thinking about just kind of dissent as this kind of aggregate category. Well, great, thanks. So we've been speaking with Chantal Berman, uh, Georgetown University, about her new American Journal of Political Science article, Policing the Organizational Threat in Morocco. Uh, Chantal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. This was a pleasure. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this is the book segment. Uh, we're joined today by Ahmed Kanani of Earlham College. He's the author of the new book, All Politics Are God's Politics, Moroccan Islamism and the Sacralization of Democracy. Uh, Ahmed, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So tell us about the book. Um, well, it's yellow and <laughs> it has a really pretty picture. <laughs> There's give or take 144 pages of text. <laughs> um, and I like it. Uh, so the book basically <laughs> makes the argument um, that Moroccan Islamian uh, are committed to an understanding of democracy that is both rather sophisticated and also in some ways overlaps with and in others departs from kind of standard Western articulations of democracy. Um, and, and that the ways in which Moroccan Islamian articulate demokratia um, is really important to attend to because if we're not thinking carefully about what they mean with this language, we're gonna we're going to fail to understand their behaviors um, in really significant ways. And we're going to kind of mislabel um, behaviors, right? So the kind of skepticism that a lot of Western authors have held towards Islamism, I think is unwarranted. 
um, and their kind of apparent investments in, in democracy both include the ballot box and exceed it. Um, and then I think the final kind of claim that's really worth thinking through uh, and, and a claim I really try to um, highlight in the book is that we as Western scholars, and you know, at this moment in particular, I think it's rather transparent, um, have to think carefully about what we mean with democracy and that there's a lot for us to learn um, from the ways in which Moroccan Islam even articulate and think about democratia. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting book. And you come at this from, a, from an unusual perspective. Let's start right at the very basics, though. Uh, why do you use the term Islamiyun instead of uh, more familiar terms? Yeah, that's, um, can I say, because I'm fussy? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, in all sincerity, I mean, so Islamiyun itself is a kind of interesting neologism. Um, but, the, but the truth of it is that Islamism is, a, I mean, so as, a, as like a kind of neologism emerges in the French and it's used to describe Muslims who are socially conservative, politically active, and who draw on their notion of Islam or the Muslim tradition um, to kind of embody a politics. Um, I don't use Islamist because that um, there's this kind of weird history of words that end in IST uh, in English being kind of ungenerous. Um, and so I use Islamiyun because it's the word that Moroccan um, socially conservative, politically active, Islamically inspired activists use to describe themselves. Um, so this is, there's a kind of post-colonial ethic that I hope shoots through this book um, that I think is part of thinking carefully about um, using language that people use to describe themselves as the language that's, that's appropriate. No, that makes perfect sense. So then following along in that, uh, in that uh, vein, uh, the major theoretical uh, grounding of the book and, and where you, you situate it is in this idea of ordinary language and of trying to understand the meaning of words as they're used by the people using them. So tell us a little bit about that. How, how did you uh, end up with that kind of theoretical approach and methodology and kind of tell us what you did with it? Sure. Um, so let me like begin by saying there are a few people in political science. I think Hannah Pick and Lisa Wedeen and Fred Schaefer are the three who to me stand mm -hmm. out as like the most effective readers of Wittgenstein. I mean, so Wittgenstein basically approaches these kind of metaphysical questions at, that people have been perplexed by, like what is justice or what is the good? And his answer is something like, why don't you, instead of worrying about them in metaphysical terms, attend to what people mean when they use these words, because probably the answer is there. Now, democracy feels like one of these words that has profound kind of normative valences. And one way to unpack what democracy is, which I think is pretty standard in our discipline, is to begin in the abstract and say, well, democracy includes things like majority vote, or maybe it's a plurality, or maybe democracy includes whatever the abstract things that we imagine. And an alternative gloss is to say, how do we unpack what this um, kind of really important nomenclature means um, is to ask how do people use this word? Um, and so that's, that's kind of where Hannah Pickin, I think is a really helpful reader of Wittgenstein. Her basic argument is something like, if you wanna understand what justice means in the world, rather than asking about what is empirically, truthfully good or just in the world, you might just ask instead, how do people use the word justice? And what actions do they like usher under the kind of umbrella of justice? Um, Lisa Wedeen does similar kinds of work, although she reads Wittgenstein a little bit differently than Fred Schaefer, and I'm more inclined to the Fred Schaefer read. So Fred Schaefer does similar work thinking about um, how in Senegal people articulate democracy. And his work, I think, is really important for thinking about how it's possible that people use similar language around the world to mean kind of different things. And because democracy itself is a loan word, 
um, it's going to have some of the kind of heritage that emerges from really the Enlightenment, but it's also going to start taking on local meanings. Um, and those local meanings are really the ones that are important to chart to understand what's happening differently globally. Um, so again, to me, this is kind of the, the ordinary language philosophy. The basic, basic argument is uh, if you want to know what a word means, you have to figure out how it's used. That also overlaps with, or kind of dovetails nicely with a post-colonial approach to thinking carefully about how people who are historically underrepresented or marginalized think about themselves and the life worlds that they create. So one of the things which was extremely interesting was uh, this idea that um, for these Moroccan Islamion, uh, they were engaged in a Moroccan public sphere where people of all different ideological stripes and broad publics had been talking about this for years. So in other words, they're engaged in an ongoing conversation, not only among themselves, but with a wide slice of Moroccans who actually care about the question. One of the delightful things with Morocco is when you're, when you're, you know, when you're a broke grad student uh, or you're a grad student on a, on a fellowship, um, you could probably take nicer transportation, but a fun way to get around Morocco or what's called Grand Taxis. And the Grand Taxi is basically a, a, like a Mercedes beater. It's probably like a 1980s or 90s Mercedes that could comfortably fit four or five and really fit seven. Um, and, you know, if you want, you can buy two seats and you can travel between towns that don't have the rail. Um, and you can also travel between towns that do have the rail, which, you know, is a, is a function of French colonialism uh, in Spanish. But um, so I'm sitting in this grand taxi. I'm kind of there's me and like five other people in a, in a taxi that it's a Mercedes that's probably from the 1990s. And we're kind of zipping through these little mountain roads between Tetuan and, and uh, Chef Shaolin. And all of a sudden on the radio, this like talk show comes on about what is democracy. And, I'm, it, and of course, this is 2011, so it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of the moment of thinking about what is democracy and what does this mean for a country like Morocco. But this is absolutely a public conversation. This is a conversation that a lot of people are invested in. And so um, then you go and you, you, and you interview a lot of people then, focus groups and things like that. Tell us about the methodology. Who did you talk to? Um, what did you do when you were talking to them? Yeah. Um, so I so I got a chance to talk with just over 100 people, which, you know, in retrospect, my goodness, like the kinds of generosity that I, mm -hmm. I just it's unbelievable how kind people are that they give so much time to kind of a random person who is interested in hearing what they think about democracy. Um, but so I kind of would, uh, I, you know, I did what's called a snowball method in political science and there are different ways you can talk about it, chain referrals, something like that. Um, but basically I had a few connections that I was able to develop um, and I would, I would kind of sit down with anybody I was gonna interview or in focus groups, I would sit down and I would basically ask questions that invited them to use the word democracy more precisely, democratia, and as many possible ways as they could. So I would ask things like, what is the essence of democracy, you know, to kind of capture broadly, like definitional, like you might see in a, in a kind of dictionary. But then I would also ask things like, is there democracy anywhere in the world? Is Morocco democratic? Why or why not? Um, is this particular action, right? So the Madawana, the Shakhtia, like the personal code that was kind of uh, reformulated in the early 2000s, I would say, Tell me about that process. Was that process like, was that in accordance with Demokratia or did it fall away from it? And how and why? And that's kind of where you started getting into the nitty gritty, right? So 
people would say, well, democracy, and this is where, you know, you'd kind of, I would hear things that were pretty similar to what you might expect if you interviewed a New Yorker. Uh, you'd say, well, tell me abstractly, in the, what is the essence of democracy? And they'll say something like, well, democracy is essentially um, that people get to decide who is in charge of the country. And then you start pushing a bit more and you discover there's a lot more nuance there. So for example, in asking, tell me, are there any countries in the world are, are, that are democratic? People would say no. Uh, and I would ask why, and there would be such like intriguing and different responses. Um, sometimes it was no because of neocolonialism, which to most Americans, like um, foreign policy doesn't speak to democracy. Uh, for some people, they would say, no, France is not, for example, democratic because of the profound racial injustices that transpire in France. Um, so you start learning that democracy has these like really strong social justice kind of ethics. and. From my perspective, there's this really interesting thing that happens as well uh, that I think the kind of the Trump moment has highlighted of um, thinking about citizens and non-citizens and the ways in which uh, democracy might negotiate um, the kinds of rights that are afforded to people in, in these two categories. So for Moroccan Islamiyun, um, and I think this is common across people of uh, religious traditions across the world, there's an investment um, in the soul and there's an investment in people in ways that like kind of that exceed that of citizenship. Um, so for Moroccan and Islamiyun, foreign policy is part of democracy because it, it attends to people, it attends to souls. Um, and similarly, racism and the kind of, the kind of, and I imagine xenophobias and the kinds of treatments of um, uh, Latinx persons who are crossing the American border and being apprehended by American security forces. Um, those are also people, and to the degree that they are not being treated with justice um, from the vantage of Moroccan Islamiyun or decency, um, there is a lapse of democracy, right? So democracy starts taking on really different intonations. It's really, really interesting. So I actually want to, like, as we dig into this, I want to go a little bit out of order from the way you went in the book. And I actually want to start with uh, this kind of, uh, when you look at procedural democracy and institutions, and don't actually find all that much difference in how Moroccan Islamiyun think about it and the way Westerners think about it. Yeah, totally right. I mean, so it's the like uh, kind of hilariously again, and forgive me for echoing Trump. This is just that moment, but um, the idea that dead voters. I mean, of course, in the American context, clearly, like the election, uh, you know, mm -hmm. clearly the election resulted in what we saw. Um, but Moroccan Islamiyun actually have experiences of like sham elections. And for them, a sham election is not actually in accordance with democracy, um, which is a kind of basic minimalist proceduralist articulation of democracy. So here you find Moroccan Islamiyun um, coincide with people like Robert Dahl um, or, or kind of any number of like people who were part of, uh, I don't know if you remember the kind of early 1970s empirical democracy movement. Um, who think of democracy in really procedural minimal terms. So mm -hmm. uh, is there press freedom? And what does that press freedom look like? And is there, um, are, do people have access to ballots? Are people getting paid for voting a particular way? Those are the kinds of questions that Moroccan Islamiyun um, actually negotiate in their day to day. Uh, and that for them would make a state more or less democratic. So in that regard, Moroccan Islamiyun really line up nicely with the ways in which Western minimalist theories of democracy operate. And, and you, you note that they place a particular emphasis on freedom of expression, which I found interesting. Yeah, totally, right? Like we, 
particularly post Ayatollah Khomeini and like the Salman Rushdie affair, like I think, um, and Charlie Hebdo most, you know, kind of with, with Francis. There's this sense that Moroccan Islamian or more generally Muslims are kind of opposed to freedom of expression or freedom of speech. And at least the research I did um, with Moroccan Islamian indicates that that's simply um, an unhelpful stereotype uh, that Moroccan Islamian um, are certainly offended um, when there are ungenerous portrayals of sacred figures in their world. Um, but they're not going to draw the line there. They're going to insist that, in fact, freedom of expression is like critical to the emergence of democracy. And because democratia is connected to the sacred, um, it's necessary, um, right? It's, it's not simply a thing that they're going to let go. It's a thing that they're going to insist on freedom of expression because of the ways in which Mor like Moroccan Islam invest so much um, in democratia in spiritual terms. So... Let's go from there then back to, I think, one of the most important substantive um, uh, kind of intersections between kind of uh, Islam, Islam and uh, democratic thought. And that's this uh, comparison between the concept of shura and uh, democracy. So walk us through that a little bit, because I think it's a, it's a really important part of your book. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, I, I hope there are important parts of the book. <laughs> um, so, I, like, I mean, I think Moroccan Islam understand, uh, I mean, there are a few different ways of understanding Shura in their language. Um, and just to be really clear, like, I'm really attending to the language, which I think you alluded to earlier when you asked mm -hmm. about ordinary language. I'm really not as invested um, in thinking about what a specific individual says so much as charting how they're using language. Um, and so, you know, if they use language in a way that struck me as kind of interesting or unusual, I would run it past other people and be like, hey, does this feel like, you know, this person's pulling one on me? Or does this feel like actually a reasonable way to say this? And so Moroccan Islam one would say things like, look, look, democracy and sure, they're the same. Uh, and other people would say, well, democracy is like a kind of instantiation of Shura. And other people would say Shura is greater than democracy, right? right. Those are kind of the, the few different approaches to the relationship between Shura and democracy, all of which um, I think are really innovative within the historical kind of um, the historical field of the Muslim tradition, right? So historically, like Shura meant something much, much, much more narrow. It was like, hey, should we go to war? And I'm gonna ask like the ruler would ask seven or 10 or 15 people. And now Shura has this kind of huge broad imperative to be consultative in a way that is like articulated through voting um, and a kind of dramatic like change in the Muslim tradition. And I think in ways that are really exciting. And, um, and importantly, I think in ways that connect the Muslim tradition to democracy. So now when the people, when Moroccan Islam talk about the prophet and they talk about the prophetic tradition or the Quranic tradition as including Shura, what happens too, and Shura as being identical to, or in many ways overlapping with democratia, is that the prophet is read as a Democrat with a lowercase d, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but that means that the prophet and the prophetic tradition and the Muslim tradition as a whole are shot through with this like clearly post 16th, 17th century notion of democracy, um, which is a kind of amazing and dramatic, like innovative departure from the historical Muslim tradition. And and I don't one of the things which I is don't important. But one of the things which is important here is that in many ways, you don't care what Muslim tradition says, you care what Moroccan Islamian think now. Totally, totally right. And so they're kind of investment in this. I think like one way to approach this would be to say that, oh, there's like a departure from orthodoxy or these are like kind of heterodox practices or like, you know, and if you, I mean, I'm, and to be really clear, the Islamian I'm speaking with are principally nonviolent. 
So there are there are Islamists mean, both in Morocco and elsewhere in the world who find democracy abhorrent, who would say that democracy is idolatrous, whatever. Um, but the people I'm speaking with, I think, are like really doing interesting work and thinking about what counts as the boundaries of Islam and the Muslim tradition, right? So you know, I wish I would have asked, I didn't, but like I, I sincerely don't know, and I kind of imagine that. Moroccan Islamists, when they decide to vote, probably have to think about, hey, should I like make wudu? Should I perform ablution? Um, because if voting is actually a worshipful act, there are like a series of standards that like, like the worshipful acts have like kind of ritual um, undergirding. And if they have, if they are in fact worshipful, then what is the ritual undergirding for this kind of a worshipful act? Um, all of which I think is kind of extraordinarily interesting and exciting in the ways in which this is broadening and deepening the Muslim tradition. Now, I actually want to uh, not push you here, but I get a little clarification here, which is Please. you talk to um, people both from the PJD and from Adolescent. Um, do you see yeah. any differences between them in, in terms of how they think about these questions? Um, you know, a little, but not a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. So part of, and, I, and you alluded to this earlier with the public conversation that's happening in Morocco, is that these are all conversations that um, everybody is part of. So if I go and ask a socialist, hey, you know, do you think that like democratia is connected to Shura and they're like a card carrying atheist, they'd probably be like, yeah, I kind of get that. I mean, I don't call it Shura, but I can get that, right? right? So part of what's happening is that there are these linguistic rules, like there's a kind of grammar that everybody kind of gets, even if they don't necessarily think that that's the way they would articulate something. And that certainly holds for Moroccan Islam within themselves as well. So some of the differences that are kind of on the margins are, for example, um, more people in Adal Wahistan um, are open to like articulating democratia as excluding um, racism. Um, for example, or like discrimination more broadly, whereas my, from what I'm recalling, uh, most people in the PJD don't think of it in those terms. Um, and like the, the idea that Shura is specifically worshipful, right? That was like an actual like kind of like set of language that emerged. Um, that language emerged specifically in conversations with the people in Adel and the Justice and Spirituality Movement, and not with people who are in the Party for Justice and Development, which is the kind of governing party of the day right now in Morocco. But, um, but I think the underlying grammar for them is very similar. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so one of the things that you do kind of towards the end, which is kind of interesting, is that then you go and you look and you see, you know, how do they, do they practice this internally? Uh, how, how does Democratia or Sora or whatever, how does it work inside the parties? So tell us about that in terms of uh, the, what kind of connection is there? Do they practice what they preach? Yeah. Um, I like that practice that they preach. Uh, that's kind of fun given the, um, yeah, I think they do. I mean, right, so the, the PJD has had, it is just kind of an institutional party the way that many parties operate globally. Um, it began, um, so the Moroccan regime was really opposed to Islamist parties, the Islamian in, in office. Um, in part because I think the regime relies on the language of the, you know, like the commander of the faithful as the king. So the, for the longest while, Moroccan Islam Union were explicitly kind of excluded from um, the political as like governance. Um, and I think unlike other states in the Arab Muslim Middle East, um, eventually they were kind of brought in. And I think that probably allowed for the emergence of um, what Janine Clark and Jillian Schwedler described as like moderate mm -hmm. uh, kind of 
kind of Islamism. And I think there's some questions we can ask about that language. And I think Jillian actually asked those questions. Um, you know, Jillian is of course brilliant, but so, you know, they are eventually brought in through um, a kind of secular shell of a party. And then that party gradually develops its own internal governance. Um, and at this point, there's a really intricate nomination process. And there, there is voting inside the PJD for who should be in what kind of an office. But the PJD, like the Democratic National Party in the American context, um, is an extraordinarily like big party. And it has a lot of internal kind of um, institutions. And in that regard, like it, it's both fully consonant with a proceduralist, minimalist understanding of democratia, and also um, really complicated to negotiate. Um, right. So it's, yeah. it's like, you, you know, there's this body that responds to this body and this body elects five people who were decided upon uh, like who will be the secretary general, like this body nominates five people and then the entire party will vote on those five people. So there's a lot of like agenda setting and the kinds of things that happen in bigger parties happening in the PJD now, all of which, again, I think track with proceduralist or minimalist visions of democracy. Um, and then Adelweh Hassan has a rather, you know, and just to be really clear, Adelweh Hassan, I think has changed since um, the late Sheikh Yassin passed away. Uh, and I don't, I have not been able to stay up with people in Adelweh Hassan to know about what it looks like right now. But at the time that I was doing research and at the time of the writing, um, there was a really kind of straightforward um, set of bylaws that governed elections. And the basic thing was, um, it was kind of like a, a vertical structure and there would be groups of five to seven in each level of the vertical structure. So at the base, there's this thing called a family that's composed of five to seven people. And when it got big enough to have um, to split, it would split into two families. Each family had a leader and the leaders of those family met for like a council. And then the leaders of that met for a council above them and so on and so forth all the way up. Um, and the basic rule for how they would vote on or how they would kind of select leaders was that there would be like a clear, open nikash, like a debate or a conversation about who should or could be leaders. And then people from the council above would kind of facilitate a vote and they retained the right to kind of veto um, whatever the people decided. So that was a right that they retained, but they very rarely um, exercised uh, according to the people I spoke with. Uh, in fact, the person I spoke with suggested, uh, one of the people I spoke with suggested it only happened two times in the many years that they had been part of Adam and my son. Wow, um, so it, it was, yeah. sorry, say it again? No, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it kind of in some ways, I, you know, and I draw this comparison in the book and like, I think that it's kind of a vexed comparison because of the ways in which um, most Americans in particular encounter Iran, but in some ways it bears some kind of interesting analogies to the ways in which the Iranian um, process imagines like uh, a kind of electoral electoralism. So I guess one last question then um, is to return to uh, where you sort of began when we started talking about uh, their ideas about uh, demokratia. Um, and that's this connection to social justice and, and bread and substantive results. And uh, how, how, is, how central is that um, as opposed to the procedural for the way they're thinking about uh, democracy now? Yeah, I mean, so I think, I think they're both central, right? Like, I mean, I think they're from Moroccan Islam, at least in, in my research. Um, if you have the one and not the other, it's either like, it's either a hollow kind of appearance of democracy if there's procedures, but no attentiveness to kind of 
um, the the substantive outcomes. And if you have the substantive outcomes in the absence of like kind of procedures, it's just, it's also not democracy. So I think both of them are really kind of vital to the emergence of what they would describe as like a full or whole or meaningful democratia, right? So, um, and the substantive is, I think really kind of interestingly, um, it lines up closer to something like a Scandinavian model of democracy that would include like um, the access to public housing. It would include um, pretty intense wealth distribution mechanisms. It would include literacy. It would include, and all of this, as you know, comes under the rubric of bread, um, which I think is, is a kind of interesting um, metaphor for thinking about what is substantive and kind of in what I think is kind of fun and interesting. Um, there are these like kind of suffragettes in the early 20th century who imagined um, democracy as uh, bread and roses. And I'm not sure why exactly or how that language emerges, um, but there's this notion of, of like kind of a hardiness and like everybody gets a meal, everybody has a place to sleep. Otherwise, why are you doing all this? If you don't, if you don't have a place to sleep, what's the point of all this, mm -hmm. right? It's something that's failing along the way if you have to sleep on the road and you're going hungry. Um, and, and I think the idea is then democracy has to find a way um, to ensure that even those persons, and I think this returns too to caring for the souls of people that by attending to the welfare of persons as a whole, everybody has to, everybody has to be able to eat. Otherwise there's just a failure and it's not really democracy. But then uh, if, if you have uh, uh, kind of bread without elections or, or the kind of the trappings of democracy, would they be okay with that? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think then, then they would articulate that as something, I mean, in something like Kuwait, um, which is clearly not democratic according to, according to them, something like Saudi or maybe Singapore or, or maybe Brunei. I mean, there are a handful of places in the world that are wealthy enough to ensure that their citizens are largely cared for in a kind of physical day-to-day -day sense, um, but whose politics are dramatically stymied by virtue of um, that, that exact wealth, right? And this is what um, political scientists often think about as a resource curse. Um, and I think to Moroccan Islam, you in the absence of those procedures, right? So for example, um, the absence of freedom of expression. There were a few Moroccan um, journalists who, who were, and actually a rapper um, post in the, in the heels of the Arab uprisings, um, who were arrested um, basically for insulting the king um, or for failing to, you know, on freedom of expression. And Moroccan Islam, you articulate that as cutting against Moroccan democracy. Um, so I think it's not simply that there have to be free and fair elections, but also all of the trappings uh, in order for this to be meaningfully democratia. And in the absence of that, again, it's hollow, right? So it has to be, it's a both end situation is, is the way I encounter the language. Well, great. So we've been speaking with Ahmed Kanani about his a new book, All Politics or God's Politics, Moroccan Islamism and the Sacralization of Democracy. Um, Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure.